Welcome to Data Science Perspectives. This series focuses on analytics and data science professionals from across industry to learn about how their career unfolded, what skills they look for when hiring, and what trends they think are coming next. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Data Science Perspectives. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Today, we're going to be joined by Joe DeCosmo of Anova International. Joe and I first met probably about 10 years ago through the International Institute for Analytics. And for many years, we saw each other multiple times each year through the analytics leadership program that he participated in and that I was also a part of. He's one of those people that when you first meet him, you just know he's both smart and a nice person. As with many people of our generation, he began his career in the early days with roles at major direct marketing agencies such as Donnelly Marketing and Rack Collins. He then founded and ran his own consultancy for more than a decade before selling it to the Elan Group and then serving first as their VP of Analytics Solutions and then as the Executive Vice President for Strategy and Analytics Services. For nearly 10 years now, Joe's been the Chief Analytics Officer for Anova International, and he recently also became their Chief Technology Officer. Anova creates custom credit models for people who have slightly below the typical credit score in order so that they can lend to them effectively. Joe helped lead the team from a startup mode to a publicly traded company via an IPO several years back. He also serves on several advisory boards and has a BA in economics from Lewis University near Chicago and an MA in economics from the University of Illinois, Chicago. And with that, let's welcome Joe to the show. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Bill. It's great, uh, great to see you. What I'd like to start with is everybody comes from a different uh, different background into the world of analytics and data science. And I know you started academically with an undergrad and master's in economics. So how did you end up over in the world of analytics then uh, as you began your career? Yeah, it's a, a good good question. So my, uh, my degrees are in economics, but my uh, graduate study was focused on econometrics which is basically statistical modeling and, and forecasting um, for, uh, for um, economic statistics. And so, um, so that was really my focus, very heavy modeling and, and analytics focus um, in my studies. And um, while I was attending graduate school, I was also working at Argonne National Laboratory um, in their energy and environmental services division. And I was doing various um, electric utility forecasting models, emissions forecasting models and the like. And so that's really when I got my um, taste of the practice of um, analytics and, uh, and data science as well. And then I moved into um, pricing, early in my career, pricing models and demand forecasting models for the phone company um, for the first few years of my career as well. So very heavily modeling and, and analytics focused back in the late 80s, early 90s to, to age myself here. Well, aging us both here, I, I guess I'll throw us in the same bucket. Our generation of analytics uh, folks mostly went through at least some stint in what was then the hottest area of, of uh, direct marketing. It might've even been still called database marketing back then when that was a new thing. I know you did as well with a couple of different companies. What did you, uh, what did you learn during those uh, 
those jobs that you've been able to carry over throughout the, the ensuing years? Yeah, so for sure. So I, I, you know, after a couple of years at Argonne, three years in uh, telco, I moved into marketing analytics. So um, as you um, shared in my, my bio and background as well. So yeah, focused on uh, direct marketing models um, back in the day. That was really, to your point, the sort of epicenter of um, marketing analytics back in the, those days in the early to mid 90s. Um, the things that you know, I learned then that are still applicable today are, you know, it's funny, I think back to, you may remember this, um, it still exists, but the, the crisp DM model for analytics and model building, it's actually still updated um, today, but the whole process of, um, you know, identifying a business problem, coming up with a um, potential solution or model for that, identifying the data you need, building and testing a, an algorithm, and then uh, deploying and measuring uh, the results of that, um, that still applies today. I mean, we would do that process for, you know, direct marketing campaigns over the course of, you know, months. Um, these days, the difference is, you know, we do that process, you know, likely over the course of, of weeks. Um, and the models we build are more sophisticated. The amount of data we're looking at is is larger um, than it was back in the day. But but those basic concepts um, still apply, right? Um, regardless of whether you're building a you know machine learning model for credit risk or a uh, response model for a you know direct mail or online marketing campaign. You, know, you, you mentioned an important concept there, which which uh, I agree with, and it's that you know, crisp DM. On the one hand, you could argue it's fairly simplistic, et cetera, and how can it still be relevant after all these years? But at the same time, I mean, really, it encapsulates and captures what the process is. You know, those those high level steps. Just because you're using different data for a different purpose and it's a different algorithm than we used 20 years ago doesn't mean that you're not effectively following that exact same process. And I think a lot of folks uh, uh, feel like the yep. process has changed over the years. I don't know that it's the process, it's the data and some of the algorithms that we're applying. What do you think? Yeah, to totally agree. You know, the other thing I, I would say is that um, the other thing that hasn't changed in, in uh, the last, you know, 25 years of data science and analytics is that, you know, in any modeling project, predictive analytics project, you still spend the majority of your time gathering and prepping your data. That the, the act of building the final algorithm, estimating the final model is many times the, the, um, you know, the last, you know, 10% of the work and the 90% uh, of the work is the uh, collection and, and uh, data prep. That hasn't changed. I don't see that changing um, even as we get more sophisticated in our uh, data. <clears throat> well, one time you did make a big change though. You actually left the corporate world for a while 
And I've always respected people who are able to do this. You started your own company and many people try that and most of them fail, but you managed to grow your company for 10 years and then actually sell it. So what, uh, what led you to take that, that gamble? And then what did you learn through the process of, of growing and uh, then eventually selling your company? Yeah. So, um, there, there wasn't, you know, a ma necessarily a big, uh, business plan behind, um, behind my decision to start the Cosman Associates. I had in, during graduate school, I had sort of given myself a personal goal of starting my own business by the time I turned, uh, 30. And, um, I literally, incorporated to Cosmo and Associates and launched um, launched the business two months before my 30th birthday, the summer of, um, of uh, 1995. So um, so that was the extent of my, my business plan. At the start, it was just me. I was a you know one person operation for the first year. Um, and then you know focused on building up a, a book of business and starting to add um add some staff i mean it was never a big company so we got to about a dozen employees um at the end um but you know um very um you know very successful small business and uh after 10 years of doing that you know decided i was ready to you know be part of a larger um larger organization again which was when i started thinking about um selling and and decided to um sell to a client of mine, uh, the Elant Group, which had been a client for nine of the previous uh, 10 years. So I joined a company that I knew knew pretty well um, as well. And it helped them build up their um, analytics capabilities. That's good. I guess that, uh, that partially answers what, another thing I was curious about, which was as you go from your own company and and being your own boss for about 10 years, you go back to being an employee. Uh, you know, what was that? What was that transition like? And how did that impact how you went about analytics, if at all, when you're working for someone else again, as opposed to yourself? Uh, yeah, so it, um, as I said, you know, the, the transition wasn't that jarring um, because it was a company that I knew very, very well, right? I known the the leadership of the company for the previous nine years. I knew what I was uh, joining um, and they knew what I was bringing to the table. So, um, so that wasn't, that transition wasn't that difficult. I would say the big change was, um, you know, right off the bat, a bigger team. So I, I took, you know, most of my employees with, but then took on their, uh, analytics uh, staff as well. Um, so managing a larger team. Um, the approach to analytics didn't really change that much. Um, you know, I had already been at the table with them building out their analytic capabilities the previous nine years. So that didn't change all that much. Um, but then obviously the access to a broader and bigger client base um, and bigger programs was uh, was the other uh, the other nice change. Um, other than that, you know, I was happy to have you know 
rephrase, I was happy to not be responsible for, you know, uh, office leases and health insurance and payroll and all those things as well. So it was, it was nice to be, that was, it was fun while it lasted, but it was nice to be able to focus back in on the, uh, uh, the analytics work. Well, you're, you've been at Anova now for about 10 years. So maybe I, I'm sure a lot of listeners might not be uh, familiar with Anova, you, even though you're a, a public company, maybe uh, give a little bit of overview of, of what Anova does. Uh, so, and, and how analytics comes into that. Yeah, sure. So uh, Inova is a financial technology company. So we are actually approaching our 20th anniversary from uh, when the founders first launched uh, the company. Uh, that'll be next year in, in 2024. But um, but we'll uh, but also we're approaching our 10th year as an independent uh, public company as well. Uh, next year. So Inova is we're a financial technology company. We are an online lender and our mission is to provide um, fast and trustworthy credit to consumers and small businesses here in the U.S. and then in select markets uh, around the world. And we do that through really through a um, very sophisticated um, technology and analytics platform. So we're essentially an e-commerce company. Um, that's how we operate. Uh, we have no physical branches or stores, and all of our customers interact with us through our through our online channels. Um, we have a um, collection of seven brands: um, uh, three uh, three consumer brands and um, four uh, four small business. I'm sorry, uh, three consumer brands, three small business lending brands, and then a payments uh, company that we acquired a few years ago as well. So when you um, when you moved over to the public company, especially one in an area like lending, which is somewhat regulated, right, and, and dealing with businesses and, and consumers, what did you find was different? You know, we talked a little bit ago about Chris DM and how there's some pretty standard modeling processes. What did you find the difference was in yeah. working for a public company in this kind of a space in terms of the types of risk management or governance and other things that you had to do that maybe in the past just weren't as important? Yeah, you, you've hit on, on most of it. So we've always been, you know, when, even when um, prior to, to um, becoming a, independent public company. Um, we had we always been and are to this day, both state and federally regulated. So, um, so to your point, you know, uh, consumer and small business lending and, and credit are highly regulated industries. And so, um, you know, we make sure that we are um, compliant in everything that we do in our, um, in all of our practices. Uh, having said that, you know, going public, it really made us um, not change the way we operate, but be much more um, deliberate about having our processes well documented, well understood, um, available for our, um, you know, stakeholders and board members and everyone else to um, um, to review when when need be. So it really brought um, a level of discipline um, 
to our business that um, didn't change the spirit or the um, the way we make decisions, but uh, the way we uh, make sure that everything is documented well, that we've got good practices and controls around um, the decisions that we make. Um, that's the big difference. And I think we've struck a really good balance between how we impose that um, that structure on, uh, on Innova, but also keep the sort of agile, entrepreneurial um, spirit alive as well um, within the business. So uh, as you've spanned things from um, agencies to your own company to public companies, what are some of the skills or traits that you personally have that you think have been most instrumental in helping you succeed across all that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think a, a lot of it is just being um, open and and willing to take on new experiences and challenges. Um, that's probably been the biggest thing in my career. Um, even going back to my, you know, the first ten years of my career before I launched to Cosman Associates. You know, I I took a few job changes um, during that time and. And they were either lateral or, in one case, actually a, a step backwards in in level, but um, and pay. I, you know, I've had taken some pay cuts <laughs> along the way here, but um, but um, I did it to build sort of skills and experience and broaden the experience that I have in different, whether it's a different industry or um, you know, a different team or, or type of, of team to work with. And then obviously that, that led into my 10 years at, with the Cosman Associates as well. So I, I think that probably more than anything else. I mean, I haven't written code or built a model in 10 years. So, you know, we have, um, I'm not going to tell you that today it's my, you know, data science skills that distinguish me, but I think it's the, um, it's the ability to, to take on new challenges and experiences and then um, figure out, you know, best ways to solve them. And I, I always like to say that, you know, the question I ask these days is less, you know, how do we solve a particular challenge that we're having? And it's more who can solve it on the team, right? Who's the best person equipped to solve that problem? And so, it, it the focus changes a lot more people oriented from from the what and how to um, who's who can do that who's best suited to do that. I find it interesting you you know when you mentioned you even took a pay and level cut at one point to build out your skills. I think that's a good a good lesson for especially young people in their career to think about, which is a lot of folks try and optimize their level and pay at the moment each step. And that can work, but you also run the risk of almost getting yourself so specialized in this one area that you can keep moving up in a little niche. And then at some point you decide you're not a fan of that niche and you don't have as many places to go versus taking that more strategic approach that you did. Of, I'm going to build this broader skill base, which in the long run will hopefully lead you to, you know, higher level, higher paying jobs. But 
it, it, it takes a little bit of, uh, of, of both hard work and a little bit of faith to take those, what at this time seems like a cut. Yeah. You know, I, I, I advise students today. I, I'm, you know, you noted in the intro, I'm active on some advisory boards here in Chicago. And, um, you know, whenever I talk to students that are starting their careers, I always tell them that, like, don't trade, you know, a little bit of salary and a, and a title for um, skill, really three things, skills, skill development, um, new experiences, and network, the ability to make um, connections, you know, early in your career as well. And that, you know, you're much better focusing on those things in your first, say, 10 years than you are in focusing on um, salary and, and title. I tell my daughters that are, you know, I have two daughters that are, you know, out of college now. I advise them that. I advise, you know, the students that are graduating um, those things as well. I'm not sure they always listen, but um, but I think it's pretty important advice. That That's really good advice. And uh, as part of that explanation, you mentioned, you know, that you serve on some advisory boards and all and serve as a mentor to students. I, I know uh, not everybody who's senior in their career does that. So what what made you decide to get involved in some of those give back uh, activities? And then what have you gotten out of it yourself? Because, you know, I know I've, I've done similar things. I know people who do it love doing it, um, even though some other folks just can't understand why they would. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I started, um, honestly, when I, when I launched uh, DeCosman Associates, I started getting active in, um, at that time, really industry groups, local and national um, industry groups first. And, you know, to be honest, I did that because, you know, as a small business, you know, things can get a little bit lonely. And so um, having, building up those connections um, through those organizations that I became involved in through board board memberships. And ultimately, in some cases, I became, you know, president of a couple of them that that I was active in. But, um, uh, you know, I did that to really build my my own sort of network and, and networking skills. So it was sort of enlightened self-interest, as I like to say, back in the day. <laughs> Um, and it helped me with DeCosman Associates. So later on, you know, as I've, I've, I've um, you know, stepped into, you know, corporate, more of the corporate world leadership roles, it just, I just kept that as part of my, you know, how I allocated time. Um, you know, these days I do a little bit less of it. So I'm a little more selective of the the boards that I'm on and, and the roles that I take. Um, and the advisory boards for the couple of local universities here in Chicago, um, you know, those aren't big time commitments, you know, it's, you know, a, you know, a quarterly, you know, events and, um, you know, whether it's board meetings or meeting with students and the like. So, um, and it keeps me connected to um, not just the programs, but obviously the students in those programs, because, you know, we like to have, um, have our company, uh, you know, well known, at least amongst the local tech and analytics community as well for internships and, 
and recruiting and everything else as well. So, um, so I still do it all. It's not as much of the time, my time as, you know, it has been in the past, but um, it's still important to me to stay involved. Well, as time passes, uh, as you've already alluded to, what we end up doing every day varies and, and changes subsequently, you know, early career to, to late career. At this point, you know, if you wake up on a given day, you look at your calendar and you see what's on deck, what are the things that would make you say this is going to be a good day? <laughs> you know, my, my answer might the, the, my answer might be a little surprising, uh, maybe not for folks who, who are in my, have similar role as me. Honestly, what gets me most excited is when I see some white space in my calendar. Okay. Because it's it's unusual these days. You know, I oversee, you know, between technology and analytics here at Innova, I oversee about 375 folks across, you know, a dozen different teams. And... Um, my days are pretty packed with meetings. And so these days, what gets me most excited is an hour or two of open space where I can actually, you know, do some deep, you know, more deep work, thinking a little more strategically about, you know, what we need to do and, and, um, and, and about our teams uh, as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, other than that, I mean, I, I I have our leadership team meetings every week um, with all my direct reports. Those are, I love those meetings. Um, we have a, I have a really great set of leaders and um, getting, getting us all together in a room every week, um, you know, talking about our challenges and, and collaborating is, um, is super uh, invigorating too. So yeah, those are the two, but yeah, white space these days is, uh, is that a premium? You know, I, I, I still wonder if the, the technology and, and such hasn't accelerated the trend away from white space. Like I, I don't know that our, our parents' generation struggled the same, but I know like when, you know, my, last, my years at Teradata, and most specifically at the end there, when you've got, you know, global teams you've got to be coordinating and all these other things, you're ostensibly focused on strategy as a key part of your role, yet it's a struggle to ever find time to actually do it. So I think, I think you're, you know, what you're describing yeah. is a very common, uh, a very common scenario. I don't have the answer to how to fix it, but I do feel like um, that uh, companies should value giving people like yourself white space and like almost mandating that you get white space every week for a couple hours here and there, because I think it would make you a whole lot more effective and make anybody more effective at a job that involves big picture and strategy if they weren't on 10 hours of zoom and, uh, and, uh, teams calls all day. Right. 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 So we have adopted, um, and we did this, um, it was pre COVID, but we adopted a policy meeting free Friday afternoon. So we do have a policy of at noon on, on Fridays, um, no meetings. Now, you know, there can be, you know, if, if there's there impromptu things can happen or come up that require, you know, you to hop on a, a meeting or something. But we try to enforce that um, pretty strongly across the whole company, really, to give everyone that space at the end of the week to 
you know, wrap up their open items, think about, you know, have some time to think about, you know, what they, um, maybe some longer term uh, things as well. And so that, that's that been helpful, um, uh, been helpful as well for us. So we try to do it, um, takes discipline to, to, um, to stick to it, but, um, but that helps for sure. You know, the other thing is we do, so much of our work happens in Slack now and not, you know, if, if I rewind five years, you know, most of us did most of our work in either in meetings or in email. And you can sort of decide when to, you know, you can set times to when you go through your email and, and sort of, you know, work your email inbox and the like. And now everything's shifted. Um, and it really happened during, during COVID. Everything's shifted to, to Slack. And, you know, it's sort of instant messaging and that's how we all get our work done now. And so it's a lot more um, immediate as well. So more interruption, more immediate um, interactions, which is good. I think it's good, but it definitely is different than, um, than you know, how we sort of processed our work, you know, five years ago. Well, I've kept you a while, so I'll finish with one one uh, question. We've talked a lot about your past and some of the stuff you're doing today. As you look forward the next couple of years, what are some of the some of the trends that you see coming our way that you think are going to have the the biggest impact on our industry? Uh, yeah, you know the the, the just the continued um, advancement of um, cloud. Um, data science tools and platforms um, making more and more available, you know, the ability to process really, really large amounts of data um, and use the most sophisticated uh, algorithms, whether it's, you know, um, straight up machine learning um, algorithms, you know, morphing into AI and the like, I think those are the big, um, the big trends going, going forward. Um, and that's what we're excited about. So we are, um, you know, we're very focused on, on those advances as well here at Innova. Um, the other thing that I'm excited about, and one that I think we've been, again, a little bit ahead of the curve on is the growth of um, model operations. And the importance of analytics teams owning their um, their uh, operations and infrastructure as well. So I think gone are the days of building models and handing off implementation and deployment to tech teams and others, and then you know the analyst you know moves on to their next model. Um, you know we've got a dedicated. Um, model operations team now that supports all of our infrastructure from pipelines for building um, to deployment and then in production execution and monitoring and that sits within our analytics org so we we own that now it's a up to a, we've doubled the size of that team over the last year it's about 12 folks now and and that's the other area that's super exciting for me to see other companies um, as they get more serious about uh, data science, building out a model operation and owning a model operations infrastructure and team as well. 
Well, thanks so much for your insights today. I think uh, you provided some some really good information and guidance throughout the conversation. So thanks for taking some time out of your day to talk to me, Joe. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it was it was great, Bill. Great to catch up, and um, you know, I look forward to uh, talking down the road.